Matthew 11, verses 2 through 26. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Thanks, Megan. Well, hi, friends. Please keep your Bibles open. We've got another long passage. 
that I'd uh, love for you to track with me all the way through. But the first thing I want us to look at again is the words, the, the last words we just heard. So look back at verse 25 and 26. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now we're working our way through the book of Matthew, and we find from time to time Jesus says things that we may not fully understand, we may not fully uh, even like. But the most important thing for us, uh, for small, brief people like us, when we encounter times like that, is not so much to search out and judge the words of Jesus, but, let, but to let the words of Jesus search out and judge us. In other words, I have the option of sitting back with my arms folded, my face all squinted up, trying to decide how I feel about what Jesus just said, like a grown-up might do. Or I can lean in, wide-eyed, ready to receive whatever comes from the mouth of God with faith, like a child might do. Because according to Jesus, it's possible for us to get too grown-up for our own good. It is the gracious will of God to hide things from the wise and understanding. In other words, people who think they've got things all figured out. And to reveal things to people who are humble and dependent, willing to be taught, and inclined to trust what God says. Childlike people. What kinds of things is Jesus talking about here? What kinds of things are hidden from some and revealed to others. That's what the section of scripture that we're looking at today is going to help us see. But if I could just summarize it way too simply, I'd say that Jesus is talking about the things that matter most. The things that matter the very most in the whole universe. Things related to life and death and God and your soul and judgment. When he says things like, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I don't know what to do with that other than turn to God and say, please give me ears to hear. So let's do that together before we get into the text. Heavenly Father, we do come as uh, as needy people through the course of a a week or a day or an hour. We can um, forget that. We can act too grown up. We can act as if life ought to go our way, as if you ought to do what we think, as if other people are here for our convenience, for our advancement. We can forget that we need you every hour. We can forget that your words are actually like food to us. So right now we come as we open your word and just pray, uh, would you give us ears to hear? We need to hear in a way that uh, is only granted by you, Father. I don't understand all that, but I believe it's true. You have the ability to reveal things and you have the ability to hide things. Lord, would you reveal things to us? May our hearts be such that you are graciously inclined to reveal things to us today. 
I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this passage has a lot going on, but I think we can kind of uh, find a common thread running through it around the idea of expectations. Okay, Jesus confronts and corrects people's wrong expectations about who he is, who John the Baptist is, and who should be afraid of judgment. So we'll look at each of those one at a time, starting with who he is. And interestingly, if not encouragingly, this first faulty expectation comes from arguably the person who should have known better than anyone who Jesus was. Maybe that's encouraging for us. This is his own cousin, John the Baptist, and here's the first expectation we find that has gone awry. John the Baptist's expectation regarding the Messiah. So look back at verse 2 with me. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? Now a little backstory in case uh, you're not familiar or in case you just forget things like I do. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. And from before John was even born, an angel had said this was going to be a really important man, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, that he was going to go before the Lord, preparing the way for the Lord so that people could know salvation and the forgiveness of sins. You can read all that in Luke 1 for a reminder. Now, fast forward 30 years, and John the Baptist is out in the wilderness wearing weird clothes, eating a weird diet, and saying really harsh things to people about God's coming judgment. Here's just a few of the things John was saying. We saw these months ago when we were in Matthew 3. I'm going to put them up above my head so you can be reminded. In Matthew 3, we hear John the Baptist saying, You brood of vipers, to the religious leaders, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is bold. The prophetic shoe fits. He comes in a long line of those who spoke forceful warnings for people to turn from their wicked ways and return to the one true God. So we find here that, maybe not so surprisingly, based on uh, the kind of man we see John to be, he's in prison. And uh, we'll read a few chapters later. It's because he went after King Herod uh, for an immoral relationship. So John is now in prison. So John's in prison, but he knows his cousin Jesus is still out there. And he knows that they're on a mission from God, so he's probably not all that concerned at first. But as days turn to weeks, and weeks turn to months, and Jesus still hasn't shown up and busted his cousin out of prison... And let all the bad guys have it, John the Baptist starts to get a little worried. Maybe a lot worried. Might not be too dramatic to say John is having a crisis of faith. Try to go there with me if you can. He says, Are you the one who's to come, Jesus? Did I get this whole thing right? Or am I supposed to be looking for somebody else? John knew what the coming Messiah was supposed to come and do, or at least he thought he knew. Listen to some of the things that had been said about what would happen when the Messiah came. John would have had these things memorized. From Isaiah 59, I'm going to go through this quickly. The Lord saw 
the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Now, the first 14 verses of Isaiah 59 give details about all the sin that is separating God's people from God. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one who could intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. In other words, since there was nobody to intercede and bring salvation to God's people, God took it upon himself. And we know that Isaiah was talking about Jesus, even though it was 700 years before Jesus would be born. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. This guy's, a, this guy's a warrior. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. This is the kind of thing John was expecting when the Messiah came. This reads like a, like a pregame speech in a football locker room. This is what John has in mind. The one who is to come is coming all warriored up and coming with a vengeance. So when John's out in the wilderness baptizing people and he wants to talk about Jesus as Jesus is just getting his ministry rolling, he says things like this, back to Matthew 3. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one that's coming after me is mightier than me. His sandals I'm not worried to to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear the threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, making a way for Jesus. JTB is expecting the Messiah to come in fierce judgment on the sins of the world in order to set all things right. And instead, he's sitting in prison hearing reports that Jesus is partying with tax collectors and sinners. You can see why John's faith is being shaken a little bit, right? Day by day, he waits for Jesus to show up with his winnowing fork and bust him out. You can only, you, you can only tell the jailers so many times, just wait till my cousin gets here <laughs> before you start losing hope and losing heart. You can imagine John, right? Like, Jesus, I thought we were in this together. Like, I went after King Herod. Like, I probably wouldn't have done that if I didn't think you had my back. Are you the one who's to come or should we look for someone else? What's going on here? Why am I still in prison? John the Baptist is losing heart and I for one can't be mad at him for it. I know what it's like to feel confused by God, let down even. I can relate to having unmet expectations about what it's supposed to look like following Jesus. Can you? I've read all the promises of God about his love for me and his commitment to me and his nearness to me, about things working out for me, about him hearing all my prayers. There's a lot of things in my life that have happened that I don't like, that don't feel like love, that don't feel like victory. A lot of prayers that don't seem like they've been answered. 
I get John. I'm not even in prison. What honest Christian hasn't cried out to Jesus in the night, are you really the one or should I be looking elsewhere? Nice to know you're not alone. Do you know what's even better news than not being alone? Is that Jesus can handle your questions. Jesus can handle your doubts. He can handle your crisis of faith. He won't push you away or take offense at you in your weakest moments. He's patient and he is gentle, just like he was with John. Look back at verse 4 with me. And Jesus answered John's disciples, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. No scathing rebuke. No, how could you, John? Jesus doesn't take offense at his forerunner's cousin's faltering faith in him. It's as if he puts a loving arm around John, lifts his drooping chin, and says, check it out, John. I know it doesn't feel like it at this moment. I know everything's not going according to your plan. I know that my ministry might not be going according to what you expected, but John, everything that's supposed to be happening is happening. The blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, lepers being cleansed, deaf hearing, dead being raised up. These are also things that the prophet Isaiah said would happen when the Messiah came. He was to bring not only righteous judgment, but also extravagant blessing, particularly on the least of these. On the outcasts, the weak, the needy. Jesus says, open your eyes, dear cousin. The kingdom is here. It's showing up in glorious power and blessing. John, I've come to obey the whole will of my Father. Not just meet your expectations or anyone else's. Verse 6, he attacks this on at the end. And John, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Gentle rebuke from Jesus. Hold on to your faith, John. Don't fall away just because I'm not living up to your expectations at the moment. It's worth pointing out that John wasn't completely wrong about Jesus. It's not that Jesus wasn't supposed to come in judgment. It's not that there's no axe or fork or fire. It's just not yet. John didn't see the whole picture yet as clearly as he thought he did. He didn't understand the whole plan. Like the rest of us, I suppose, John was on a need-to-know basis. There's just a lot of things at any given moment that we just don't need to know. The question is, how will we respond when our expectations of following Jesus aren't met? we charge God with wrong? Start looking elsewhere? Will we take offense? 
Or will we take up his word and recalibrate our expectations with all that God has said? Deconstruction of our faith is often necessary in the life of a follower of Jesus. But it should always be done with the word of God open, like Jesus just did for his cousin John. It's not that Jesus isn't who he says he is. It's just that we have yet to comprehend all that that really means. That's expectation number one. John's misguided expectation about the Messiah. Let's look at number two. Next, we see the crowd's expectation regarding John the Baptist in verses 7 through 19. Now, here's what I love before we read it. Right after Jesus gently rebukes his cousin, he turns to the crowd and fiercely defends his cousin. Did you know you don't have to have everything right for Jesus to come to your defense? Read with me starting in verse 7. So as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Because they all went out to the wilderness to hear John preach. What did you go to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses, not, not king's prisons. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. In fact, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So in case anyone is ready to write off John the Baptist because of this little crisis of faith, Jesus confirms John's status as a prophet. And he goes, even, goes so far as even to say, he's actually also the best dude that's ever been born. Now John had had his moment in the spotlight out in the wilderness, no doubt. But since he'd been locked up, you know how it goes. People kind of forget about you or start reinterpreting their experience of what you did and said and start to kind of dismiss uh, who, who you are because of how it's kind of turned out. And for John, it hasn't turned out so great. So, it's, so, so Jesus says, so, what, so, who, so who did you think he was? A reed shaken by the wind? Did you, did you think he was just another man that was kind of like blown about by, by the, latest, uh, the latest fad, the latest the new teaching, the latest popular opinion? Do you think he was just another flash in the pan, spectacle or well-dressed celebrity? Or do you think he was a prophet speaking the very words of God? Was he actually representing the heart of God? Was John merely interesting? Or do the things he said to you actually still have a claim on your life? Jesus answers his own question, confirming John's status as prophet. Not just any prophet, but the prophet who had himself been prophesied about. The prophet who would come and prepare the way before the Messiah. Now, if you want to turn backwards in your Bible a few pages, um, 
I, I want you to see this for yourself. If you have like a scripture journal and you can't go back to the Old Testament, that's fine. We're going to put it up above you. But if you just flip back to the, the beginning of Matthew and then go back one more page, you're going to, you're going to find yourself in the Old Testament. And the very last book in the Old Testament is the prophetic book of Malachi. So first look at chapter 3 of Malachi, verse 1. This is the tail end of the Old Testament. Malachi 3.1, the prophet Malachi says, Behold, speaking on behalf of God, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. So that's, that's what Jesus was quoting when he said, this is, who, this is who John the Baptist was in verse 10. He says, Malachi was talking about John the Baptist. And then look uh, at the last chapter of Malachi, chapter 4. You can go ahead and read the first three verses yourself and gain even more compassion for JTB's premature expectation of Jesus coming with fire. But then look at verse 5. Behold, these are the last words of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Those are the last prophetic words recorded for 400 years until JTB showed up and started preaching. It's like ringing in the ears of a whole nation. Elijah the prophet had been gone for hundreds of years by the time Malachi was writing. But God said through Malachi that Elijah was going to come again before the day of the Lord. Jesus now confirms, he was talking about John the Baptist. He was an Elijah-like prophet. John the Baptist is a big deal, Jesus is saying. He's a prophet who had been prophesied about. And the first to come in 400 years. He plays a unique role in the unfolding plan of redemption. So much so that Jesus can say that no one born of women has ever been greater than John the Baptist. He's coming hard with his defense of his cousin here. Now, it should come as no real surprise, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is facing opposition, suffering violence, as it has uh, all through the, the Old Testament prophets' ministries. Elijah's ministry was marked by opposition. Just because John's in prison doesn't mean we write him off and discount his ministry. The expectation was that the kingdom would come in violent judgment, but for the moment, violent people like King Herod are doing their best to stop the advance of of this rival kingdom. So I love that Jesus comes to the defense of his cousin. I love that he's unhindered in his assessment of John's ministry. Greatest dude ever. But I love also the almost parenthetical remark that Jesus makes in verse 11. Did you notice it? No one born of women is greater than John. However, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Can we just pause on that for a second? No one born of women has been greater than JTB. Not Father Abraham. Not Moses. Not great King David. Not even the prophet Elijah himself. So what in Jesus' mind makes John so great? Well, it certainly has to do with John's role in redemptive history, right? I mean, he's his cousin, so he's probably got family bias. But probably, mostly, he's talking about 
the role that John played in this unfolding plan of redemption. Think about it. No one who had come before had greater proximity to Jesus than John did. And therefore, no one had greater clarity about Jesus than John did. 1 Peter 1 says that Old Testament prophets were dying to know who they were talking about when they prophesied about the coming of Jesus hundreds of years uh, in advance. They were dying to know. They were saying what God told them to say, but they didn't really get it. It's like they saw it, but it was really, really blurry. They were speaking God's words, but not fully aware of what God was promising or who God was promising. John, on the other hand, wasn't prophesying about something that was going to happen hundreds of years in the future. John got to look Jesus in the face. John probably had playdates with Jesus. He got to baptize Jesus in the Jordan River. He got to touch him and speak to him and see him and say, this is the one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to touch. John's heralding of Jesus set him apart from everyone who'd ever lived because of his proximity to Jesus and his clarity about Jesus. But even the lowest, littlest, least significant seeming person in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is greater than John the Baptist. How can that be? Who sees Jesus with greater clarity than John the Baptist? Who has more privileged proximity to Jesus than the one who was sent to prepare the way for him? Whose heralding of King Jesus can possibly have greater impact than JTB? Apparently yours. Apparently mine. John saw Jesus with greater clarity than those who came before him. But even John's vision was blurry, as we've already seen. John died before Jesus even won his greatest victory on the cross. You and I know the whole story. We have the rest of the New Testament bearing witness to all that Jesus accomplished for the redemption of mankind. John's proximity to Jesus was hindered by miles and even a jail cell. You and I and everyone else born of the Spirit have the Spirit of Jesus living inside of us. There's nothing that can separate us from Jesus and his love. Those who have been born of the Spirit see and know and proclaim Jesus with greater clarity and greater proximity than John the Baptist. Tell me this. Is Jesus a liar? Is Jesus confused? Then this means that you and I are greater than John the Baptist in our ability to impact the world with the good news of Jesus. You and I 
are greater than John the Baptist in our ability to impact the world with the good news of Jesus. Say this out loud with me. I am a greater gospel minister than John the Baptist. I am a greater gospel witness than John the Baptist. Do you believe that? Is Jesus lying? Even if you feel like you're the least in the kingdom, Jesus says you're greater. Your life will have a greater impact. You see him more clearly. You live with him more closely. Think about that. Jesus concludes his defense of John the Baptist with another rebuke here before we leave this second section. This time, the rebuke is aimed at the hypocrisy that he's finding among this generation that was privileged enough to be alive at the turning point in all human history. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, but who shall I compare this generation to? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came, neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man, talking about himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom, Jesus says, is justified by her deeds. So Jesus often encourages grown-ups to be childlike. This is not one of those times. This is Jesus telling grown-ups to stop being childish. More specifically, he's getting after their hypocritical demands that the kingdom of heaven show up on their terms and according to their expectations. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. In other words, you guys are supposed to be playing by our rules. You guys are supposed to act the way we think you're supposed to act. And we'll tell you when you're right and we'll tell you when you're wrong. They see John the Baptist not eating and drinking, and they say he's demonic. They see Jesus eating and drinking, and they call him a drunk who carouses with lowlifes. The fault finders who childishly think that they get to call the shots. What they don't realize is they're finding fault with God himself. Wisdom will be justified by her deeds, Jesus says. In other words, the fruit of John's and Jesus' lives will vindicate the way that they lived them. Question for you. Do you insist that God play by your rules? Do you childishly insist that things ought to go your way? Or do you leave room for God to surprise you, even to confuse you with the way he carries out his redemptive plan in your life and in this world? The wisdom of God will be justified by the way this all ends. The day does not come when any one of us looks back on our lives and say, God was wrong. That day doesn't come the day does not come when any of us look back on our lives and say he blew it, he missed it, he was wrong, he wasn't wise, he should have listened to me. That day doesn't come. 
It's the childlike, not the childish, who will have eyes to see what the Lord of heaven and earth is doing in his world. The wise and understanding who insist on their own way will be blinded by their own pride. There's one last misguided expectation that we need to look at. And it flows right out of what we've just seen in the hypocrisy of so many who'd witnessed the ministries of John and Jesus firsthand. The third is a fearful expectation regarding judgment. Let's pick back up at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you, be brought, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, it's a little harder for us to appreciate the shocking offense that these words would have carried because we don't instinctively cringe at the names Tyre and Sidon the way Jesus' hearers would have. Most of us probably have some negative associations with Sodom. These these were synonymous, these cities were synonymous with wickedness and judgment. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities that were often uh, rebuked by Old Testament prophets for their rampant wickedness and idolatry. And then, of course, Sodom was destroyed way back in Abraham's day because God couldn't even find ten righteous people in the city. Remember that? So for Jesus to say that the Jewish cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were worse off than those wicked cities of old was about the most offensive thing you could say to a group of Jewish people. Their own expectation regarding the coming judgment of God was that they'd be okay because they were Abraham's children. They'd be okay because of their family line. But judgment was coming on all those wicked people. Notice Jesus' reasoning. He says, these are the cities where I've done all my works. Capernaum was Jesus' kind of uh, home base for most of his ministry. They've seen his mighty works. They've heard most of his teaching, and they hadn't repented. They hadn't turned from their sinful ways and embraced the gospel of the kingdom. As John, the apostle, might say, the light came to them, but they hated the light. Their deeds were dark. They wanted nothing to do with it. If Tyre and Sidon and Sodom had seen what you guys have seen, they would have repented, Jesus says. I find it interesting that Jesus lands here on judgment at the end of this uh, kind of extended dialogue. Because this is the thing that JTB was so concerned about. This is where his confusion all stemmed from. Where's the judgment, Jesus? You're supposed to bring judgment. 
So in case John or anyone else in the crowd is starting to think that Jesus actually wanted nothing to do with judgment, Jesus confirms that a day of judgment is coming. It's just not yet. In chapters that we'll get to in the next several months, we're going to hear Jesus talk more about the coming judgment and the fulfillment of all that the prophets had foretold. But in this moment, Jesus' warning is very clear. It says, those with privileged access to my ministry and the things I've done will experience more severe judgment than even those with an unmatched reputation for wickedness. It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for them than for you. Now the fact that there will be various degrees of judgment and blessing on the less on the last day is a topic for another day. But the fact that every one of us will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ is a topic for every single day. And for those of us living where and when we live with nearly unlimited access to the word and testimony of Christ, we ought to pay very careful attention to words like this. You could argue that we have more privileged access to the words and works of Jesus than even those Jewish cities did. Are we responding appropriately to the amount of light that we've been given? To borrow language from John the Baptist recorded in Matthew 3, is your life bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Does your life show evidence of ongoing repentance of sin and faithful devotion to Christ? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And he will come one day to judge the living and the dead. But today, today is a day for repentance and grace. If you're here and you have not yet turned to Jesus, if you've not yet become like a child, willing to be taught, willing to be maybe offended by God that you're not able to save yourself or that you're not as good as you think you are. If you're here and you've not turned from your sin and trust in Jesus, today could be a day that changes everything for you. Today could be a day when what what once was hidden from you is revealed to you. What once seemed like foolishness to you is shown to be wisdom, the wisdom of God. Even today, if that's you, you can receive Jesus by faith. Jesus is alive, Jesus is listening, and Jesus is perhaps even drawing some of you to himself today. Talk to him. Tell him you want to know him. Talk to somebody here who's gone before you in this walk of faith. Tell them you want to know this Jesus. Perhaps Jesus is calling somebody to himself today.
If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, how do your own expectations need to be adjusted in light of what we've seen together in God's word today? Maybe you find yourself in your own crisis of faith. Following Jesus hasn't looked like you thought it would. Will you keep drawing near, letting him assure you that he's got things under control? Will you keep your Bible open while he reconstructs your understanding of who he is and what that means for you? Maybe you're like the crowds that Jesus was talking to and you find yourself tempted to search out the latest teaching, something that feels new and exciting, flavor of the month, and leave behind the unchanging promises of God. Will you resist the urge to find fault in God's chosen path of redemption? Maybe you've grown comfortable with your privileged place in God's family. Assuming that you're okay, judgment is reserved for the really wicked people out there. Will you keep to the way of repentance and faith all the way home? Jesus is the one who was to come. And even still, the one who is yet to come again. There's no need to look for another. He alone has the words of life. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. There's no other. Look no further. But keep looking to him. Keep looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And that's what we get to do every week when we close our time by taking the Lord's Supper. If you're serving the Lord's Supper, you can make your way to the front, please. The Messiah who will one day bring judgment, the Messiah who will in fact one day bring judgment upon the earth, came first to bring judgment upon himself. It's probably a good thing John the Baptist lost his head before Jesus went to the cross because he would have really had a hard time, I think, getting his head around that one. Before the judge would take his place on the judgment seat, he would first take his place on the criminal's cross. He took the judgment that our sins deserved so that we could take the blessings that his obedience deserved. Part of the way that we lay claim to that, part of the way that we lay claim to this blessing that Jesus offers us week by week is by taking the Lord's Supper together. By taking the bread and the cup. Week after week, we're claiming that Jesus' death is our death and Jesus' life is our life. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would ask that when people start making their way to the front that you stay in your seats, not so that anyone can judge you, not so that you feel left out, but um, this, is a, this is a meal for those who are following Jesus. And so we'd ask that you just maybe stay in your seat and consider these things you've heard, maybe even talk to God in your own heart. Nobody's here to judge you. No one thinks they're better than you. We just all have come to the conclusion that Jesus is our only hope. Hope that you do the same. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here. There's going to be people in the back that would love to pray with you before you leave today. 
Maybe one of those three categories is something that you feel like it'd be helpful to have somebody pray with you about today. Maybe you're confused or disappointed about what it's been looking like in your life to follow Jesus. This isn't what you thought it was supposed to be like. And God gives grace to the humble. If that's you and you want to find somebody in the back to pray with you about that, I just have so much confidence that God would meet you there. Maybe you need to uh, believe the words that Jesus says that the least in the kingdom has the, uh, the ability to be a greater gospel minister than John the Baptist, and you'd like somebody to pray with you about that? I have a lot of confidence that God would meet you if you go back for prayer about that. Maybe somebody here, maybe, maybe this talk of repentance is, is uh, weighing deep on you, weighing heavy on you. And if you want to go back and ask somebody to pray for you, that you'd keep walking the road of repentance and faith day after day. I just have a lot of confidence the Lord would meet you in that. So for all who walk in repentance and by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, come and take the bread and the cup as those who have passed from death to life. You may come.